everybody's ambition, every little boy's ambition in, in my valley was to become a miner because uh, there was the arrogant strut of the lords of the cold face and they walked with a kind of arrogance and everybody wanted to be like a miner. Wanted to stand on street corners and look at uh, the posh people pass with, uh, with hostile eyes and uh, insult the girls from the, the doctor's daughter, the lawyer's daughter, the preacher's daughter as they passed and insult them with these cold looks because they were the kings of the underworld. Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Here tonight to discuss the mining communities of Britain and the impact of them on our politics are the co-authors of the new book, The Shadow of the Mine. Joining us is Professor Emeritus Hugh Bynan of the School of Social Sciences of Cardiff University. Hello, Hugh. Hello. And also with us is Professor Emeritus Ray Hudson of the School of Geography of Durham University. Hello, Ray. Hello there. So this book, of course, focuses on the coal fields of South Wales and of the north of England. Would you be able to start us off by describing some of the similarities and differences of the two coal fields you describe in the book? Ray, do you want to start us off? Well, I think the Durham coal field, of course, was the original coal field, uh, part of the Great Northern coal field. And you can trace its development back to the 16th century when it was very, very important as the source of coal for London. The coal was shipped down um, from the, the Tyne and later the, tea, uh, the, the Weir uh, to the London market. But because the Durham coal field had that very early development and because of the uh, important influence of major landowners, um, not least the, uh, the Church of England, but Lord Londonderry and so on, feudal relationships in the Durham coal fields took on, um, sorry, social relationships took on a sort of a feudal tinge. Perhaps the most obvious manifestation of that was that mining labour was still bonded labour till the 1870s. South Wales, in contrast, developed later in the, the latter part of the 19th century. And if you like, it was more a modern capitalist coal field from the outset, built around capitalist social relationships between capital and the miners. Both the coal fields had similar types of coal. The characteristics of coal become very important. Coal is conventionally classified in terms of ranks, which run from anthracite at one end, which is virtually pure carbon, through to lignite, brown coal at the other end, which has got a much greater degree of water and impurities and so on. But the Durham and the South Wales coal fields were both the location of very high quality coals, high quality coking coals in both, but also in South Wales, uh, steam coals and uh, in the west of the coal field anthracite. But the fact that they had those very high quality coals meant that the, a range of markets were open to them and they shared characteristics of those markets. But while the coal was of similar types in both coal fields, the physical geography of the coal fields, if you like, was rather different because South Wales was essentially a bowl cut by the valleys running north to south, so that mining developed at different times throughout the coal field, whereas Durham, the coal seams dipped from west to east. So while they were exposed in the west, so the very earliest developments took there and around the banks of the Tyne. As the coal went east, it dipped downwards. And by the time it reached within a few miles of the east coast, it was under a very deep layer of, of, of carboniferous um, limestone. 
so that that shaped the way in which the coal field developed from west to east. So the mines, if you like, moved from west to east, but it also affected the pattern of the development of mining settlements. You can trace the diffusion of those over time. By the start of the 20th century, they were actually at the east coast, mining out under the sea. Both coal fields had essentially the same methods of, of winning the coal, which we've described as a, a coal production system. There were some important differences between them, but crucially what they shared in common was a reliance upon unwaged female labour in the home, which underpinned the reproduction of mining labour in the mines. Without the women preparing food, hot water, baths, washing clothes and so on in the homes, then there's no way that the mining industry could have developed in the way that it did. So they shared that characteristic, very important characteristic in common. They also became very heavily dependent upon coal exports, exporting coal all around the world, partly because, of course, the quality of the coal that they had to offer. But they also had links within their regions uh, because the coal became used in the steel industry, um, in the railways and so on. South Wales and Durham became quintessential industrial regions in which you had these combined structures of industries branching across the different sorts of economic activity in, in, in the region. They both had a history, however, a less happy history of disasters and accidents. Major mine explosions in both South Wales and Durham, and in some ways, even more symbolically important, the disaster at Abavan. But apart from those quite dramatic and major events, the mines were both marked by... I guess, just almost an everyday experience of injury and illness um, and disease. Much of it related specifically to the characteristics of mining as an activity and the the quality of the coals in Durham and South Wales. Because they were both physically hard coals, they produced a lot of dust when they were mined, particularly when mining became much more mechanised. And that underlay a range of lung complaints that the miners suffered from, pneumoconiosis and so on. And of course, those injuries and illnesses lived on after, and this is important, after the collieries had closed. So both coal fields, if you like, had a long history of coal mining closures and deindustrialization and of failed economic regeneration programs. You can see this in both South Wales and Durham, of waves of branch plants that came and went, of coal centres that came and went, providing the sorts of low-skilled, poorly paid, temporary employment that was very, very different to the sort of jobs and the wages that had been provided in the mines. But of course, at the same time, because the coal production regime by this time was, was in dissolution, it provided opportunities for women to find wage work outside of the home And they became increasingly important as wage earners, but increasingly important as one of the reasons that we're attracting these activities to the former coal fields. So, yes, there were government grants, but it was this availability of labour, particularly female labour, which became very, very important. Both have a history of unemployment, of poverty, of degraded living conditions, which summed up very nicely by a general practitioner in South Shields, um, a town that used to have three collieries at the mouth of the Tyne. And when he was asked to describe what his, his, his patients suffered from, he said they, dis- they, they suffered from SLS, shit life syndrome. 
And I think you could generalise that to much of the coal fields of the rest of the coal fields of Durham and South Wales. And maybe finally, one thing, there are different political traditions within the two coal fields, despite their similar economic trajectories, if you like. South Wales become much more left wing than Durham in terms of its politics. And you had different forms of union organisation, which were important because Durham historically around the Durham Miners Association was a much more centralised form of union organisation. In South Wales, you had the Fed, which was, if you like, much more decentralised. And this led to different forms of union politics um, and protests and so on that became important as the history of the regions unfolded. I was going to say, Ray, you've completely guessed everything I was going to ask you. So thank you very much. You've set us up perfectly. Hugh, growing up in Cardiff, Hugh, I was always told to be very, very proud of the fact that the first million pound check ever was signed in Cardiff in the coal exchange. But from what Ray say, uh, seems to say, it, it seems to be built on the back of exploitation a little bit. Do, would you agree with that? That sort of idea that it was a purely a much more capitalist kind of coal uh, market in South Wales than it was in the north of England. I know they were both they were both capitalists, and um, and certainly the million che- pound check was based upon the sale of coal that had been dug up by miners, and miners were exploited in some of the ways that Ray has described, and the, the huge expansion in the Rhondda Valleys between uh, 18, 1890 and nineteen ten is enormous. Really, people are drawn into that part of the world to dig coal. Um, for private owners, and uh, and the particularly the the savagery of the of the conflicts that took place between 1912 and 1926 that made the South Wales miners so militant. And uh, I mean, Ray's mentioned the decentralised nature of the South Wales Miners Federation, and part of what followed from that was this interest, early interest in syndicalism and the idea of workers' control and workers' power. That was in its heyday in the, in the 20s, when they, what they met was the, was the might of the capitalist class as well. So it's, uh, it was certainly exploitation. And much of the character of the South Wales politics came out of that, I think. One of the ways in which the exploitation was, if you like, softened in Durham, is that all the housing in Durham was owned by the employer. Yeah. And so there was a, a paternalistic link, if you like, between the owners and the workers, whereas in South Wales, the link was through the wage only, really, and it was much more blatant and obvious, really, although there was paternalism in South Wales too. So the answer to your question is, yes, it was, a, a, and Roger Morgan always used to mention the million pound check, it was, it was, a, it was a sign of, of the Welsh economy, and uh, South Wales and Durham completely dominated the world market in coal. Uh, until up until 1920. There are markers of, of, of how South Wales made its place in the world, really, undoubtedly, but it's also the case that it was it, that the miners were exploited and that, that they also fought against it, which was what made South Wales what it was, certainly by 1945. So you've mentioned a, a Labour politician, so we'll get on uh, to the Labour Party a little bit. Uh, at the front of, of your fantastic book, there is a map detailing the, the coal fields of Britain and that the three largest groupings of those coal fields are the north, the Midlands in the north of England, South Wales, and, and in the Scottish central belt. So all but one of those areas have seemingly abandoned the Labour Party. And whilst I appreciate your book is about two of those areas very specifically, I did want to ask 
a little bit about the central belt of Scotland, which is now an SNP heartland. And actually, in some parts of that belt, Labour are now the third or fourth party. Are there any links, do you think, between the research you've done in, uh, especially in the north of England and central Scotland to why people have stopped voting Labour? One thing that's that's quite an interesting way to begin it, perhaps, is to say that if you listen to um, John Charles, who was a famous Welsh footballer, and uh, Jackie Charlton, who comes from Ashington, and Bill Shankly and Matt Busby, and they all say the same sort of thing. It was either football or the pit. That's the commonality of these places, is that the pit dominated and some very gifted people played football and rugby. And in the post-war period, that was all held together very powerfully by the National Union of Mine Workers and the National Coal Board. So in a sense, they were all those patches on the maps where people were part of the same thing, the same industry, who saw themselves doing the same job, regard themselves as, to some extent, British miners, but miners who had commonality with other miners with the same kind of lives. And I think what we trace in the book is that how when, the, when those mines closed, a lot of things fell apart, really. And the Scottish mines closed at the same rate and pace as the South Wales mines and the mines in Durham. And we could have included Scotland in, in the book if we'd had enough time and energy, really. So what happens afterwards is something that under, underpins what we're writing about, is how the social fabric of these places starts to get unpicked. And in a way, the story is the same everywhere, but places are different. So the, diff- the ways in which the unpicking takes place is rather different in different places. And in Scotland, in 2010, uh, Labour had 42% of the vote. And in five years later, it had 24% of the vote. It's absolutely astonishing collapse of, of the Labour vote. And if you listen to some of the SNP people talking about what the situation was, they'll describe how in each of the constituencies, all Labour people control the wards. They talk about it in the same way as we've quoted people talking about councillors in Ebervale and councillors in the West of Durham. There was this kind of atrophied party, really. What happened between 2010 and 2015, of course, was, was, the, was the Scottish referendum. Uh, and I was in Glasgow in 2014, and I was quite astonished by just how the mass meetings that they were having had engaged the young people so tremendously, really. And it was as if in the middle of all this unpicking, the fact that the Scottish National Party had become a political party to some extent progressively to the left of Labour, but also engaging people in a different kind of view of how their future might be, seemed to have taken hold, really. And then in the following election, in that election, Labour has collapsed and Scotland, the SNP take almost all the seats, really. Partly they were able to do that, as Ray probably explained, is because they, they did have a credible economic policy based upon Scottish oil and so on. And also, uh, in this way, I've tried to describe culturally and politically engaged people which was quite novel. And that, for reasons which we might come on to, hasn't yet happened in the North East or in South Wales. It's, it's happened in different ways, I think. It, it is astonishing how, I mean, it's, um, it's how Lanarkshire is so much like South Wales in so many different ways. And how Richard Wynne-Jones talks about the long-term and the short-term issues, you know. And it's, you can see these long-term trends at which we're writing about and the particular instances that actually make 
can make things in different places different. But it all comes out of this this great unraveling that follows the, the collapse of the coal industry and the collapse of what we've talked about, these industrial regions, the end of industrial Britain. It, it's still carrying on. I think what, what was important in, in, in all this was the sort of the way in which Scottish nationalism became transformed. The sort of thing that Tom Nairn was writing about in the 70s, the way in which um, the, the SNP moved from a sort of a cultural nationalism to a much more political nationalism. And what enabled that was, was the belief that there was Scotland's oil. And on that basis, there was a, a, the potential for a viable economic strategy for Scotland. Whether that was ever the case at the time is debatable. Whether it's certainly not the case now, but that's been passed over. And I think that's because of some of the things Hugh was hinting at, that the, there is this sense that basically, partly because there's a different tradition of the institutions of civil society in Scotland, there is a belief that actually they, they, can, they can put together credible alternative strategies for Scotland, particularly in the context of, of, of an independent Scotland as a member of the European Union, no longer tied to... English politics and the parliamentarianism of Westminster, if you like. I've talked to Ray about this several times because when I w w lived in Durham and I, I would travel up by train from London, I was always taken by the fact that when you got into Darlington, you had an arrow pointing both ways <laughs> and that 250 miles to London, 250 miles to Edinburgh. So you're, you're halfway to Edinburgh when you get into Durham, really. So one of the physical things that differentiates Scotland from Wales, I think, is how, is how enormously separate it is. There's a real border there, whereas we've got a bridge in a way, and it's uh, much more porous borders in Wales, I think, from, from, from in contrast to the Scottish one. So uh, I'll ask a question, uh, a question to Ray about the North thing, and then I'll, I'll go to Hugh about Wales. Ray, how is Scotland different to the former coal mining areas of England, which now have seemingly decided to vote Conservative? Does it all boil back to the same thing? I, I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll get into Brexit in a little bit in more detail, yeah. but, but is this a one-off thing, voting Conservative? Because it doesn't look like it to me. It, it, it's interesting because um, I'm, I mean, just thinking back um, to the 70s. I mean, I can remember going to meetings in Newcastle when Margaret MacDonald came down and uh, sort of harangued uh, the assembled uh, Labour notables of the Northeast as to, in a sense, what, what, why, why, why weren't they doing something in the way that uh, was happening in Scotland? Why wasn't there an alternative? And I guess part, part of it is that the, the way in which the Labour Party particularly in Durham, through its links with the NUM, was very much tied into, if you like, in English politics. The consequences of that became quite interesting in, in the early 2000s, when, of course, there was a referendum in the Northeast as to whether it wanted its own assembly. And it was thrown out by about 80% to 20%. We, we'll leave over uh, Mr. Cummings' role in, in that. But I thought what was interesting about it was the 80% the was a very curious mixture of, of those who actually were against devolution per se and those who were for devolution but thought that what was on offer was so weak it wouldn't make any difference. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, tactically, it might have been better if some of those had voted for what was there and then tried to work with it. There was this, I suppose, just this sense that somehow the Northeast couldn't go it alone. It was, it was too dependent upon the sort of transfers from London 
from its connections with national politics. And there wasn't that sort of cultural, that sense of cult cultural and political independence that the Scots had developed. Because, of course, at one time, Scotland was a separate nation. The northeast was never more than a border, re border region of northern England where it abutted onto Scotland. So I, I think the, the sort of history in that sense is also quite important in terms of the understanding of what was possible. There's always a Dan the, the Danegelt, right? So I have to go back a bit further. Hugh, not even <laughs> I go back that far. <laughs> is there anything above and beyond Brexit that motivated people in the north east to vote Conservative? Yes, there is. We, we, we sort of chart this in the book that the erosion of Labour support in the North East, we can trace it back in terms of the way electoral support with one or two notable reversals fell off more or less systematically from the mid 1960s, the 1966 general election. And I think what increasingly became clear was that through the Labour Party, and through electing Labour politicians, that what was being promised to the North East was never delivered. So the support for, for mining eroded, the delivery of alternative jobs never really transpired in, in, in the quantity and, and quality that, it, that had been promised. And much of that became associated with long periods of Labour government. I think what was absolutely crucial in this, though, was that after the Thatcher years and the election of the Blair government in, in 97, I don't think anybody in the industrial northeast, other than a, a very small majority who had material interests in, in, in the Conservative Party forming a government, I don't think nobody expected much of a Tory government, particularly one that was led by Thatcher. But when Blair was elected as Prime Minister, for a northern constitu northeast constituency, Sedgefield, enormous majority himself, there was a belief that actually Labour would now deliver on its historic connections with particularly the mining unions the and, and, and the mining areas, and something serious would be done about a social and economic regeneration programme for those areas. When it became clear that that wasn't going to be delivered, I think the erosion of support for the Labour Party, if, if you like, the, the, the trickle became a flood. And you can see this in the way in which the seats that eventually voted Tory in 2019 in the west of the coal field, the first to lose the coal industry and the influence of the mining lodges and so on, they were the ones, uh, Bishop Auckland, Northwest Durham, around Consett, the old coal and steel communities, Sedgefield, Blair's own constituency, going conservative. Wasn't that actually, to me, wasn't that much of a surprise. I won, but was never paid a small bet uh, with members of my family as to what was going to happen in 2019. But I think you could see it coming. And it, it wasn't just Brexit. It wasn't a sudden erosion. That, if you like, was a, a, an important moment in the acceleration of a long-term process. But that process, I think, um, and I think Hugh agrees with me on this, you trace back to the mid-60s. Hugh, why do you think that South Wales is, is different to these other areas that have now stopped voting Labour? You talk about its radical history. And I suppose you could ask, is Wales really that different at all? You've seen the Tory vote share in Wales continue to grow significantly. And a lot of people said that Mark Drakeford has won the, the recent Senate election on the back of his response 
to the pandemic. So I suppose I have to ask, is Wales really that difficult, that, that different at all? And will it be the next domino to fall for the Labour Party? Well, it is a bit different, but it's also very similar. It has seen a, an ongoing decline in the share of the Labour vote. And I, I often mention the fact that in 66, in Ebu Vale, 85% voted Labour. So they had an independent, in my, which I never thought I would see in my lifetime, and a huge vote for UKIP and a massive vote to leave. It is similar. I think the difference, if you look at South Wales, Scotland, and the Northeast, one of the differences is, is that in South Wales, Labour face a split opposition. The, the Labour vote is as low as it is in Durham, but because the opposition is split between the Tories and Plaid, they keep the seat. So I think that would be a case for saying it's very similar. The difference between the Northeast is, of course, devolution. And one of the elements in the book argues that devolution hasn't made a lot of difference in relation to the economic outcomes. But of course, the levers there aren't in the control of, of the Senate. I think that you mentioned the last Senate vote, and you remember the predictions, quite solid predictions that were being made a year before that by distinguished colleagues of mine, that the, the polls pointed to the first ever Tory majority of seats in Wales. And uh, I think that was turned around by the fact of devolution, the, the fact of Mark Drakeford. And when they say he did it himself, I mean, he's a friend of mine, so I think there's a lot, in, <laughs> a lot of truth in that. But how I read it is that he was very visible almost every day, and he was speaking what Richard Wynne-Jones has called a, a weak nationalism, but never, Wales was ever present in the way he spoke. His manner was, was reassuring and, and almost comforting, I think. And, it, and he was speaking for Wales. And I think that those mixture of things that had an impact and does show that devolution is not unimportant. But Mark is, is going to retire. Choppy waters ahead. I think it's, it's uh, you wouldn't want to predict, really. I think it's, um, uh, I think Mr Johnson is a very dangerous politician. And um, I think that what we point to in the book is this uh, this erosion of the link of what you might call the Labour Party's base. I and mean, we quote the ex-MP for Nice saying that, in fact, it's as if everything has kind of dissolved beneath us, the links to the rugby clubs, the links to the social clubs, the links to the trade unions, that they seem not to be there anymore. And it's that need for rebuilding, which I think people have said in the northeast as well, is very, very present in Wales. That need is very present, building on community councils and building a really much more solid democratic base for social democratic politics. And I think that's what I think is needed or else there's a domino problem, I think. When I was reading the book, I found it very interesting, the parallels between the general election of 1931 and the general election of 2019, mm. in that South Wales did uh, well, Labour did very badly, but South Wales did progressively better in Labour terms than Durham. Do you think that the material conditions are the same for the, for lack of a better phrase, fight back for Labour in the next election, as as happened in the 1935 election, where you know, where Durham returned all its all its MPs as Labour? Ray, do you think that do you think things have changed too much beyond an immediate bounce back for the Labour Party? Yeah, I do think things have changed too much for that sort of immediate 
bounce back. I mean, there were very specific circumstances in the 30s with, with Ramsey MacDonald and so on and seeing if you leave aside that specific set of circumstances, the material conditions that underpinned the rise of the Labour vote were still there. So you could see it as a blip that would be rapidly reversed. I don't see that now. The erosion that has taken place, if you like, in the, in the economy of, of, of the coal field, the conditions that people are living in the coal field, but also the sense that, that the Labour Party was, was really dominated by rather elderly men in suits and ties who were, who were out of tune with the times and the particularly the younger generations, but also with a failure to realise that, that, that women were, were, were actually playing an important part in political and, and, and social and civil society life. So I think there's too much of the past been eroded for it to bounce back. Of course, it, po it poses a question about what will there be in its place, because I don't think there's any guarantee that the Conservatives will necessarily hold on to the seats that they won or in, 19, in 2019 or subsequently in the by-elections. But it doesn't necessarily follow that Labour would win those seats. So I, I think we could be in for quite a, um, a volatile period in that sense, in terms of trying to, to come to some sort of more settled understanding of, of, of what the future trajectory might look like. And is, is there any party capable of actually delivering a better social and economic life in the Northeast beyond? I mean, what sums it up for me is that the, the newly elected member of Parliament for Northwest Durham is hailing the fact that there's going to be an asylum centre um, for sorry, a centre for, for female asylum seekers whose applications have been rejected cited near the concert and he thinks this is this is great he, see, he sees this as producing 160 well-paid jobs for local residents as their reward for having voted conservative well if that is the definition of a well-paid job particularly the sort of jobs that, that that we should be encouraging anyway i think it's going to be quite difficult to sustain any sort of support long term on the basis of that as a conception of, of the sort of social an economic life that we ought to be aspiring to for the region. So I, I guess I have a question for both of you now, which is sort of, with all of this in mind, how do political and labour movements have to ad adapt in, in modern Britain? If the call centres are the minds of the 21st century, how does organised labour work without the traditions that used to be so prominent in working class communities of the past? I could add, if I could add something quickly, because Ray and I did a, one of these larks a couple of weeks ago, and uh, there was a very interesting woman from Durham who spoke about putting together a, a gallery in, in Siam, and uh, she said that they had to be make it clear that they weren't involved with the Labour Party because people hate the Labour Party, and if we'd been involved with the Labour Party, no one would come. So I found yeah. that quite shocking and or not shocking I was quite shocked by that and and I think there needs to be a realization of how deep a lot of this feeling of antagonism has gone really uh, and I think Brexit brought brought that out how could we go for, forward we haven't talked about Brexit yet the uh, how could we go forward we'll get um, there don't worry <laughs> one of the things that we write about toward the end of the book or draw attention to and a lot of the work we've been doing at Cardiff in this regard shows that the coal fields are still the most densely unionized part of the country of course they're not as densely unionized as they were but they're certainly much more so than than other parts of Britain 
So there is a kind of a strong collectivism still there. And uh, South Wales and Durham, but the South Wales Valleys, you probably know, are probably the most settled part of the country. Like 80% of people in a lot of the valley towns were born in or around where they lived at the last census. So, so they parents and grandparents approximate too. So there's a, there is a transmission of views about the past. People still talk about the miners' strike as if it was yesterday, if you like. So there is this kind of, lots of attitudes surveys have done which shows that there's a significant difference between the way people think about relationships with each other in South Wales and Durham than they do in the South East. So I think there is a kind of capacity, if you like, that would need to be organised and and motivated and mobilised and that would require the trade unions to be take a different role, I think. I, I thought Carl Graham's, uh, Sharon, Sharon Graham's appointment was, uh, election was quite interesting, if you want to come on to that later. But um, the Labour Party would, would really need to emphasise more and more the need for democracy. I think there's a great opportunity, if you like, is my view, but it would require a huge amount of political and organisational invention for the the, the, the sort of spark that changed the politics in in Scotland to change the politics in the northeast and South Wales. I was just reflecting on, on 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 in a sense the what is the nature of the the working working class in the northeast and and something that's if you like post dates when we finished the book, but I think is an indication of where we are. Amazon have now got three distribution centres in the northeast. One about five miles from where I live at Bowburn one in Darlington and, and one that's opening up in, in Sunderland. Now, they're employing a lot of people. And, and, and the question is, uh, how's the trade union movement, uh, what's it doing about organising in those sorts of working environments? Because this is the new working class insofar as we have a one. I mean, much of it isn't working at all. And that raises another question about politically how, how to get some engagement between those who are being sucked into this new economy and those who are marginalised from it to produce some sort of coherent political movement that would be make make some realistic demands but have the capacity to deliver on something in in the northeast it's a bit as, as you said it's a big challenge Ray, they're not distribution centres they're fulfillment centres you should remember that oh i i, I apologize <laughs> profusely for that and if i could go back to that another one of our 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 Zoomers, uh, there was a, a, ma a man who lives in Sheffield said that the Labour Party had, had, uh, was celebrating the arrival of this new warehouse and so on and so forth. And then when they'd met him in, in private, he'd said he wouldn't, he wouldn't let a dog work there, he said, because of the working conditions. And this is kind of um, thing we do try to bring out in the book is that getting in any job is what's is a is a plus, but the quality of the job and yeah. how people react to having that job and how what people think about the job is very different. And uh, we write a bit about the abattoir in Merthyr, yeah. and if you you probably saw in the book, which is a very good example of the kinds of things that should be going on. Really, that's unionised actually. You see, we've obviously talked quite a bit about the political impact of deindustrialisation. So we will go on to a bit now about the economic, cultural, and social impact too. We, we all know of the, the miners' halls and their libraries and the, you know, the way that Aniram Bevan, we all laud and romanticise his education through the miners' institutes to go to mm. university and to learn. What do you think the cultural, social and economic impact has been to these communities through the lack of industrialised jobs and community that they created? Well, um, 
a lot of those miners' halls have, have closed down. A lot of them have been turned into other things. Um, I mean, the, the late and wonderful Howell Francis, of course, brought together a lot of the libraries from the from the halls into the into the South Wales Miners Library at Swansea University, which is some sort of continu- continuity. In Durham, of course, there's the continuity of the the Miners Gala, which is um, we write about the fact that it's become a much bigger and much more of a national event since the mines closed than it was before. It's quite remarkable. And uh, it raises a bit of a question about why don't you have a miners' guild in South Wales, I suppose. I guess we would argue that that's, again, a historical legacy. It's um, the centralised nature of the Durham Miners Association as opposed to the federated nature of South Wales. We, we also write about towers and cooperatism as a significant features of employment in South Wales and also sort of beacons to some extent of what could be done and how it could be done. So there are traces, if you like, in people's, the way people talk and, and so on. But you are right to point to the uh, to that strong legacy of weekend schools and evening classes and so on and so forth, which, again, I think would need to be a part of some new kind of educational input into these areas would need to be a part of any rebuilding you can judge how likely that is, but I think that that is would need to be a component of it. I suppose some things that people have said to us about the book is that reading it through, you realise what was built and how building a union and building a labour movement wasn't simply becoming left. It was actually the day-to-day of it all and the, and the co- cooperation and the libraries and the meetings and the buildings that they put together that they constructed. And, and someone has, has written about how long it took to build and how, easy, how quickly it was closed down, you know, which is kind of a tragic understanding of it all, I suppose. Yeah. It does point to what, what a task a rebuilding would be. And uh, some have said that new technologies could facilitate it it's going to take a lot of movement i think i mean it, it, it does it does raise a question about if if you like in terms of the very different circumstances now whether you could use new technologies and the sort of meeting we're having here as a mechanism or a means to try and rebuild a different sort of institutional structure in the in these areas one that was was rooted more in the networks of connections between people on their on, on on their iPhones or their computers, rather than them coming together in the the physical space of the welfare hall or the meeting room or the chapel in the village, the way in which that inf- institutional infrastructure was very much produced by the people of the coal fields for the people of the coal fields. What will be the analogy now, in a different sort of institutional and technological as well as political environment? There are possibilities, but how would they be realised? How could they be realised into some sort of workable politics? So some, I think there's some interesting challenges. Hugh referred to Tower. There's, a, there's another very good example of a cooperative organisation called Making Music Work that we don't write about in the book, but we could have, which, which sprung up for a while in northwest Durham uh, among former steelworkers and miners. So th- there have been these, these examples of local projects that, if you like, could have been exemplary, but... The, the difficulty seems to be that when they spring up, and, and Raymond Williams talked about this years ago, the, the, the problem is actually how these, these progressive initiatives can become generalised and linked into something bigger and something more. And I suppose the question might be, 
with the sort of tech communication technologies and so on that exist now, are there ways of making those links in ways that in ways that perhaps didn't exist in the past? But they're open questions. They're, they're, they're things that would have to be worked on and worked through, not sort of solutions that could be handed down from Labour Party headquarters or anywhere else. You've talked about avenues that could be explored in terms of cooperatives to provide work. What's your analysis been of the tendency of governments of every colour to rely on foreign direct investment to provide jobs in former industrial communities? You can think of businesses such as uh, Siemens and Sony, etc., do you think it's better that governments try and replace jobs no matter what, or should they be looking into more cooperative worker-owned businesses and or trying to just encourage and empower communities to grow themselves? I think the problem, I mean, you know, Blair's statements about globalization being inevitable and you know, you can't can't do anything about it. You just got to go go with the flow. If that, if that's your political stance, then what you what you're encouraging and facilitating is is a sort of an, an economy for areas like the northeast and south wales which will be just sort of waves waves of investment in stay two or three years out somewhere else because you can't compete on labor costs or whatever with the far east so that for me is, is that that's not a feasible option if you're serious about a development strategy for areas like South Wales and North East that are suffering from serious deindustrialisation. I think there has to be a much stronger role for the state, for, for central government. It is important to avoid the problems that came with the nationalised form as a form of public ownership. I think what we see in the, the, the book, and I think it's worth repeating, is that that wasn't too much socialism, that wasn't enough. So I think there is there are ways in which the state can be involved in a whole variety of ways but it needs to start from some sort of coherent vision of an economic strategy, which would not put places within the UK, within the South Wales and County Durham, in competition with each other in the way that has been deliberately in, in, in encouraged and, and facilitated by governments for at least the last 40 years. It, it has to go back to something that has a much more central role for a for a, uh, an engaged state a progressive state but without believing that everything can be done from the center of, of, of actually creating space for local initiatives and allowing them to be hooked up in ways uh, well hooked up with each other but also with broader national or inter-regional projects if that is feasible and again that's going to t- require a very very different sort of imagination about what an economic policy ought to be than what we've become used to, which is almost, to generalise Mrs Thatcher's claim, there is no alternative. Of course there's an alternative. We just need to think about it and make sure it's politically deliverable. I think what we try to get across in the book is that the whole emphasis has been upon, we call one of the chapters just jobs, really. It's um, areas competing with each other to bring in the same jobs. And by competing with each other, it's something that in Brazil they call fiscal warfare. You just pay, we'll pay more to get the jobs and then how long do they stay? And and people that we talked to have seen the jobs come and go really. And they question the money that was given to companies that are left. And some of them think back and say, well, why wasn't that money given to the pits really? <laughs> they, they could have been kept open a bit longer. So we'll, we'll talk about Brexit, but I'm, I'm not going to ask the sort of very traditional question about why do we think people voted leave. I think we've covered pretty much all that that ground. I'm really interested in, in what you think the overall sort of mainstream narrative has been about the 
people who voted leave. And do you think that that is fair? And, and why do you think that our political and media culture has tried to are people with a certain brush, the one that seems most convenient for them? Go on. It's, it's the reason we wrote the book, I suppose, is um, the people who voted leave have been described as people who have acted against their own interests out of either willful ignorance or carelessness, really. And, um, and the areas have been depicted as, as, as places that are made up of old, uneducated, backward-looking folk, really. I think that's uh, very become quite dangerous, and uh, uh, it's almost. I think we end the book in this way. It's almost as if there's a view of Britain now has been divided into two quite distinct tribes, as the go anywheres of the stay putters, as it were, and these are never the twain shall meet. And that's not a very helpful way of understanding either either group, to be honest. In our in our view, it's um, it's unfair and not to the point. I think if if you remember how we write the beginning of the book, our, our aim was to try to find out why people do things and why people did what they did rather than to judge them. Is that a, sort of an answer? Or... Yeah, that's a great answer, Hugh. <laughs> Ray, did you have anything you'd like to add there? No, other than the, than the, the, the views that they had had been formed by the experiences that they'd been through. There were there were a reflection of how people understood the world as it had treated them, um, and more specifically the the political forces in the UK um, of both parties that had treated them. That it, it was actually not based on ignorance; it was based on knowledge and understanding of the lives that people had led and why they led them the way they had. I don't know if I should say this actually, but there's a there's an interesting twist on self-interest really because uh, this current situation with the absence of lorry drivers. So one of the tribes is saying, well, you you silly people, why did you vote for it? Because all the lorry drivers have gone back to wherever they come from in Europe. And then what's been said is, yes, but the have you seen the conditions under which lorry drivers work? Have you seen how much they're paid? Have you seen that they sleep in their cabs without any facilities, seeing, uh, and the people who voted leave could say, yes, that's what we've been living through. <laughs> this is the kind of jobs and lives we've had. And and that's why we're pissed off, really. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, so, it's so weird how you, you've seen for the last five years or so, people have come forward with, whether rightly or wrongly, what they view to be their genuine held belief and quite sincerely do so, and yet they're castigated by the media as being ill-informed. And it just, it just, uh, and they know exactly why they voted leave. It's just so interested why the, the media narrative has now decided that they were wrong. It was, it was interesting when um, Nick Clegg went to Ebbeville. Did you see that program he did? Because he went there because Ebbeville has got so much European money and. He went there to, to explain to them why they were wrong. And he did came away, come away quite chastened, I think. What came out of the program, in a way, was people were saying, well, we know that they all this money comes here, but it wasn't money that we asked for. And there's this process when where money becomes centrally available. And when it's available, it fits into particular demands or wish lists that, that councils have. And all of a sudden, something happens with, and people say, "Why the hell is this happening?" And it's this point I was trying to make about the need for it to be democratized, you know. And um, and then 
the other thing that they got out of it was this quite rational fear that things have become so bad that if if it was possible that a lot of Turkish people were going to come, if that was even possible, that what could that even what they have they would lose is quite a fear really. And the, some of the young students there were saying people are just afraid. And when Clegg got on the train, he he ended it by saying that uh, these people have lost something that they valued, but they and they know they can't regain. And I think that's that's it really. <laughs> and uh, no amount of telling them that what their interests, uh, what's in their interests, is going to help. I think. I think this um, this this the point that he was making there about money being spent on things that people uh, hadn't asked for and didn't want. I was just struck yesterday. I mean, we we uh, we drove across to, to the beach at Seam uh, with my grandchildren, and on the way we passed the roads to nowhere and the empty sheds that had been standing 10, 15 years waiting for an occupant. And of course, people see that and ask the question, well. Why was that money spent on that? We 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 could have we could have put it to much better use. If there was money there, why why spend it like that? Why not ask us about what what we could do, what 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 we needed? Because a road to nowhere and an empty factory unit, other than I guess somebody who made a bit of money out of building the road and the factory unit, is of no good to anybody. It, it has no social use, no social value. Well, I want, just want to say thank you very much to Hugh Bynon and Ray Hudson for talking to us this evening about their fantastic book, The Shadow of the Mind, and a lot of other political, geographical context around it. Um, Ray, I'm led to believe that you are very sensible and not on Twitter, but Hugh, you are. Can I, if people want to hear more from you or talk to you, where can they find you on Twitter? At Prof Hugh Bynon. Thank you very much, both of you, for talking to us this evening. If you have enjoyed what you've heard tonight, please don't forget to find us on Medium at Here I Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Here I Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Here I Blog. Thank you for listening to Here I. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.